Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Stephanie Lewis. And Stephanie, we only met and only virtually a couple of minutes ago, but it's a great pleasure for me to meet you. And not least, of course, because I invited you because I'm a fan of your work. I wanted to start by asking what's on your mind at the moment? What's dynamizing you? What's preoccupying you? Is it about two old men fighting out some kind of gerontocratic election or is it something else? Well, the two old men fighting the election here in the U.S. is certainly on my mind, but I would say I'm quite anxious in just a much bigger picture than just that election. It feels globally there are multiple crises crises around the world, um, yeah. you know, um, whether it's environmental, whether it's war, whether it's uh, the rise of authoritarian regimes. And so I'm just, to be honest, just quite anxious these days about mm-hmm. the multiple threats from many directions. It's interesting, isn't it? It's one of those moments when I think back to the Cold War and sort of miss it because yeah. of the, the, the horrors that it wrought, but the relative stability that it provided, although one runs the risk in doing so of sounding like a conventional international relations scholar who just wants security or, God help us, the Pax Americana or something. But I take your point. It feels like a very unstable time. And lots of the people I've been chatting to recently have used almost precisely your words. And many of them are talking about some kind of dynamic between despair and hope. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And in fact, I was just reading an article this morning in the New York Times about how to shift anxiety to work in your favor, to you know, use it to be more flexible and, and ready to go with the, you know, the the flow. And so I'm trying to do that. And I actually feel like in my own work, um, I try and balance that as well, because I try to write a lot about the positive stories and the wins, but be very sober and realistic about the threats. And you're, in a sense, covering the labor beat, which mm-hmm. is something academically, which is something that the New York Times abandoned years ago, other than in the local news section where it sustains some level of interest. And the story of labor in many parts of the world, perhaps most notably the US, is one that could easily be described as a story of despair over mm-hmm. the last, say, 40 years. What's your answer to that? What's your despair answer? What's your hopeful answer to that provocation? Yeah, it's quite an extraordinary time. I've been working in the labor movement for decades, um, you know, since I really, since I was a teenager, my first job was as a softball umpire. And uh, I realized I was being paid less than the boys. I was the only girl. And that oh, really great. <laughs> it sparked my interest. Um, not just the discrimination issues, but because I tried to fight back and they challenged me saying, you're supposed to be a nice girl and not complain. But anyhow, um, so my introduction to labor was not a great one. And for the last, you know, many decades, things have been down, down um, downhill and things just getting worse and worse. Uh, you know, even 10 years ago, it felt like the labor movement was dead. A lot of people um, had written it off entirely, like you say, the labor beats and so forth. Um, and just in the last I don't know, five years or so, things are really turning around. And the last couple of years, um, I feel like there's just increasingly shocking positive developments and signs of hope. So um, not ready to write it off. And and rightly so. Uh, if you went back 10 years, I guess things like the top level of pro-male sports 
and the top level of Hollywood were our labor success stories. Um, and along with, I guess, and I'd love your comments on this, particularly given your your anecdote about softball umpiring, mm-hmm. along with the recognition, belated and partial perhaps, by the union movement in the U.S., that the image of the white industrial male worker as the agent of history, always problematic, really had been superseded and the crucial areas of labor organizing were being done by women, people of color. What's your your take on that? Yeah, that has really changed a lot too, that um, today in the United States, at least the average union member is a woman with a college education, and that is primarily a teacher or healthcare worker. So public sector unions make up the majority of union members in the U.S. And so, yeah, increasingly that's women, um, people of color, and people with college degrees. Um, However, we've seen some of the rising militancy in the last couple of years here from some of the more traditional sectors as well, and the traditional working class, um, the auto workers, the Teamsters. But even there, again, this does not necessarily just a white male working class. This is um, in in many of those jobs, multiracial um, and younger members are joining. And and there are people uh, with college degrees who are uh, increasingly interested in joining unions. Could we go back, 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 as they say in softball or baseball commentary to that experience that you adumbrated of being a college kid, I guess, making some money umpiring? And how did you find out that the boys were getting better paid than you? Well, actually, I was only about 13 or 14 years old. This was a, this is when um you know technically like the child labor days. But, you know, I was going to say that's the next issue then. <laughs> yes, um, but they would hire us to. Um, I played softball, so they would hire people to umpire, and so I just um yeah I, I remember get, it was my first paycheck and getting the paycheck and asking one of the boys like what their paycheck was and being shocked at that, and so. In that case, it was like, you know, I think we were young enough. We didn't really understand um, that you weren't supposed to tell me about your wage. You know, here in the U.S., you can get fired for talking about wages, even though that's illegal. Employers violate these laws all the time. Um, But I began to understand that, um, oh, work wasn't necessarily uh, fair and it wasn't necessarily transparent. And I began to pay attention to uh, the other women in my family, my mother, my aunts and my cousins and and kind of it registered oh wow they all work in service sector low-wage jobs that um mostly don't pay well um there's a lot of either sexual discrimination or harassment um Mm. and just you know a real lack of career for them and that really was also what really began to you know spark my interest of thinking hey this is something i want to learn more about something i want to study and then i think i'm right in saying you you went to UC Davis, is that right? Yes, right. So I ended up, um, went to UC Davis and became an economics major. And I thought that I could learn about work and labor that way. I did learn a bit and I got to learn, especially about farm work in um, that region. It's a very agricultural school. Yes. Um, and from there, I went to work at the U.S. Department of Labor on immigration issues. But I soon realized that economics was not a way to learn it was based on um, models and on false assumptions and on often faulty data 
And so that made me want to go back to school. And I thought if I want to really learn about work and labor, I'm going to have to change fields. And um, so I eventually get got my degrees in industrial relations and sociology. Um, but and a lot of it I learned through activism, really, to be honest, was like combining the activism and the scholarship was how I really began to learn more the depths of, of labor uh, issues and work issues. And do they twin together well, activism and scholarship? Are there ever moments of tension or contradiction? Very much so. And I would say, I think that is heightened in the U.S. I think uh, my understanding is other countries do a better job at this, but in the United States, it's it became very polarized. I think um, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. <laughs> Legacies of the Cold War and mistrust of academia and mistrust of activism. Um, and so I have personally never felt quite comfortable in either space alone. Um, the activist world in the U.S. tended to really downplay theory and downplay, you know, academics, and the academics are very dismissive of the activists. That has begun to change. I would say maybe maybe the last 10 years or so, um, there's a lot more uh, openness to that, but um, I would love to see it move more in that direction that I think mm. other countries do, where there's a more of a movement between the two fields. What about internally within yourself, as it were, as a scholar, activist, feminist, leftist, sociologist, political economist, you know, to throw a few <laughs> labels at you now, I know to include 13 years old umpire as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, let, let me explain the provocation. For me, one of the issues with political economy is that it can lead to a form of leftist functionalism in which the state and corporate America in particular are all powerful and there's not really much conflict going on. And ironically, Marxist origins of this thinking are disposed of in favor of this massive infrastructure that dominates versus an overly romantic, optimistic, ethnographic or textualist approach to these issues where forms of resistance are valorized as being all important and one should forget about structures of power and there not being enough oscillation between the two. So I guess that's what I'm getting at when I ask you about your idiom as a scholar and your idiom as an activist. But maybe that's a false opposition that I'm drawing. Uh, I think that's absolutely uh, the opposition, the tension that exists uh, for, I think, anyone who's trying to straddle those worlds. Um between the understanding the structures uh, of oppression and the forces against us, and then having faith in our agency and our ability to make change. And even if that's just, you know, the optimism of the will um, approach to it. So yes, I do feel that tension, but uh, I feel fortunate to have found a home. Uh, I think perhaps working in labor studies where um, a lot of my students are activists and organizers, they are thirsty for theoretical work and historical work um, and to bring their own lived experiences into the classroom. So I think it, it for me, it, it gives me uh, hope and keeps me going, um, even when, you know, yes, things feel pretty uh, overwhelming, but at least I feel like our approach is, hey, the forces may be lined up against us, but we're going to, we're going to keep trying and we're going to go down fighting. <laughs> For people outside the United States, perhaps in some cases outside the tri-state area, could you explain a little bit about the City University of New York and its historic connections to progressive thought? Sure. Yeah. So it's uh, 
it's a longstanding university, a public university that was at time at certain times was free. It was aimed to be the university for the working class. And it was the university of yeah, New York City, um, children of New York City workers and workers themselves. So my students right now, I'm at the City University of New York, the School of Labor and Urban Studies. <laughs> Many of our students uh, are union members. The unions pay for them to come get uh an education, or they might be uh, union leaders or just local activists. Um, and, and it's no longer free, unfortunately, but it is much more affordable than most U.S. colleges. Um, and so it's still, it's a massive system. It's about 400,000 students on 25 campuses, all within the New York City uh, region. So it's very hard to comprehend a huge system. Um, and I think it's still you know, we've been fighting and, you know, trying to maintain that it still holds on to its legacy as a, you know, a public institution and, and a, uh, a resource for the New York City working class. Um, so it's an exciting place to be. Yeah. <clears throat> Can I ask you, presumably, when you did your undergrad, you learned neoclassical economics or some variant thereof, maybe a bit of Keynesianism. Would that be right? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah. When you sit down with iconocrats or neoclassical economists or so-called economics journalists, yeah. do they think you've lost your mind? I mean, <laughs> are, they, are they shifting at all to yes. understand that, as you put it so well earlier, their models are based on nothing? Yeah. So this was an interesting, uh, yeah, for my own personal development, I went from being taught neoclassical economics as law, and I you know, I regret, I sometimes look back in embarrassment that I didn't ask more questions when I was an undergraduate, because I just was taught, this is how the world works. And I tended to accept that. But then I saw in, in my actual work at the Department of Labor, oh, this isn't true. So I began questioning it, began learning alternative economic theories and models. And for a while, it just felt like, well, there's no way to have any conversation between the mainstream economics, neoclassical world, and even the Keynesians to some degree, the, there's not even common terminology. There's no way to have a conversation uh, between <laughs> those outside and those, you know, political economy approach and those mainstream. I do think that has changed. My experience was after the financial crisis, after mm -hmm. the 2008 collapse, um, people began to question those mainstream theories and some, you know, some of those main advocates even said we were wrong. We made mistakes. I remember Martin Wolf from the Financial Times saying we tested this theory and it failed. So I do think the space has opened, um, but I think I feel like there's still a long way to go to have standardized political economy language accepted uh, in the mainstream because a lot of people were still, you know, we still have these columnists and, and journalists that are trained in the old thinking and just, you know, around inflation, they still just take it as standard that, you know, to crush inflation, to stop inflation, we have to crush workers. <laughs> so just challenging those assumptions over and over and saying, no, that's not a law. That's not how it works. <laughs> it's very hard to do. One of the things I found very frustrating in 2008, I was in California, which was obviously the, the beating heart of that hell, yes. was that again and again, we were told that this was the product of sort of greedy and silly working class people who got terms of trade for loans and so on and then invested in home improvements in unwise ways instead of the point being made that as productivity had soared, their wages had 
remained stagnant. You know, it was, and this was the only way they could possibly yeah. secure some kind of future. Um, now, one of the things that I, I would love for you to, us to talk about in a moment is your books and scholarly work, which is remarkable and has had a big impact on many people, myself included, both domestically and internationally. But before that, I'd like to ask you about the journalism you do, the fact that you've been able to reach out both to, in inverted commas, conventional U.S. leftist outlets and also into the belly of the beast. Could you tell us a little bit about doing that? Sure, although I'm not sure I have a really clear explanation as to how that has worked. I, so, yes, I've written for a lot of like very left um, journals and worked with left journals, but tried to get into some of the more mainstream publications, um, such as Newsweek or Fortune magazine or Time magazine, because I, I think... Um, yeah, part of the goal is to to begin to learn to speak to people that are yeah not the the choir just to speak to mainstream America, mm-hmm. try and capture some of the feelings of resentment and anger and alienation that people are experiencing. And you know, it's become so polarized as to where people get their news and information. So I know that if I'm writing in the traditional left publications, they're just not going to go very far. Um, I think that what's interesting to me is I've seen this transition since the 2008 crisis and particularly maybe since Occupy Wall Street, that some of the publications themselves, these mainstream publications are open to even using like I remember in like in 20, uh, 2010, you couldn't use the word capitalism. It was, still was not accepted to like raise capitalism as an institution. It was uh, seen as some kind of Cold War language that has really shifted. And I think uh, as as you know, mainstream people have worried about the economy and worried about what's the next model. They are more open to like discussing some of the critiques that we didn't have to space to critique 10 years ago. Um, so, but I find that, you know, it, it, it depends on the way in which to frame the language. You know, it's hard sometimes for me to, to find the terms to address a more mainstream audience, but, uh, you know, I keep trying to push myself to do that. And imagining, in my mind, I imagine, you know, uh, an old high school friend or a cousin who's not really very political, and how would I explain it to them? And that informs the way you write these pieces, I imagine, too. Yes, exactly. And and I try and do in, in the journalists and also the books, I try to write it for my students. That's always my audience. Like, I feel... I know a lot of academics write for other academics, um, which has its value. But for me, I I always write for my students. Now, before we get on to the books, I wanted to ask you about Occupy. Because this is a movement or set of movements that is off the radar now, Mm -hmm. but had a huge and perhaps lasting impact. What's your take on it looking back? A decade and more. Yeah, um, it's it's harder for me to evaluate the impact in other countries because I know that there were versions in many parts of the world. Mm. In the United States, I believe it had a huge impact, even though a lot of critics discount that. But you know, I've done a number of you know studies and interviews of key activists and tracked them over time. Many of those core activists from Occupy in the United States went on to lead other major movements. They played big roles in the Bernie Sanders campaign, in the Fight for 15, raised uh, raised the minimum wage campaign. 
um, in the movement for Black Lives and, and uh, movements to eliminate student debt. So they've really, I think many of them went through Occupy and experienced their first taste of what power might look like and decided that, okay, maybe that form of occupying the square wasn't going to win power, but they went into other movements and institutions where they could contest for power. And some of them have won pretty big things. I'm not going to say it's entirely the Occupy people, you know, they were also working with other organizations and movements as well. But I think in certain things around raising issues around debt, which, you know, again, that was not even on the table. No one talked about student debt in 2008 or 2010. And now it's a major issue in presidential campaigns. Um, And so, yes, I see a big uh, lesson from that. And I also think well, I just finished uh, reading a book uh, called If We Burn by Victor Bevins, and he's looking at these so-called, these kinds of uprising Occupy movements around the globe. And he concludes that most of them actually failed in other countries um, and often ended up worse than what they started with. So that's why I don't want to, myself, my scholarship hasn't really looked at impacts elsewhere. But sure. the U.S. has been positive. Yeah. Yeah. I was living in Mexico at the time and I guess part of the thing is that occupying the street is such an everyday part of politics <laughs> there, by left and right and even by corporate unions that I was sceptical mm-hmm. about. But I think your point about tracking the way people move on to other actions is really valuable. When I think back to the 60s mm-hmm. and the so-called failure of all those movements, I think that's really wrong-headed because in the United States – Think about the way in which libraries and higher education were successfully targeted by progressive forces following the incredible horrors of the Cold War and loyalty oaths and so on. And uh, it, it brings to mind the uh, German socialist rallying cry of the 19th century, long march of the institutions. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what you make is what you say is a great point, And I appreciate that it's based on your research. So getting on to your research, could we talk about that and your books, please? There are quite a few of them, uh, <laughs> yeah. most of them based in on the U.S., but there's the 2014 one that is looking at labor and so, as a social movement more internationally. And you did international research right, right. to write that. Yeah. So, yeah, my... Uh... Academic career, uh, my dissertation, I wrote about U.S. living wage campaigns. These are local campaigns to raise wages for workers. The the U.S. system is complicated in how we set minimum wages. And uh, so there were a lot of campaigns in the 90s and 2000s um, that brought together unions and community organizations, student organizations, and so forth to try and raise those low wages. Um, So some of that early scholarship was about that. And through that work, I began to be contacted by movements around the world that were interested in also just learning about what the U.S. was doing and uh, maybe doing some similar work of their own. So I began doing work, um, uh, you know, both studying in other countries and and also, you know, giving talks and and speaking about the U.S. case. Um, And I always was, I'm always careful to say, like, the U.S. is not, I'm not holding up the U.S. as a positive example because we've been really terrible here. But one thing we are advanced on is understanding at least how vicious U.S. corporations are and the U.S. state. And so I think 
as the U.S. corporations and global, like you know, global entities spread worldwide, you know, I think we had some lessons to share with like, here's what you might expect when McDonald's begins to spread throughout your country and so forth. So, um, so the 2014 book was my attempt to kind of find what are the similarities? There's many differences, of course, and we need to be sensitive to the differences, but there are similarities to labor movements in this global context. Um, when you have similar trade regimes, similar global corporation employers, uh, theories of labor flexibility. Um, and so, uh, and then also are there similarities in the ways people are fighting back and spaces for international cooperation? Um, so I, what's interesting about that is I ended that book in 2014 with a feeling of optimism. I thought that we were seeing the really uptick of a lot of labor, international labor work and potential projects. And in fact, I went in 2016 and 2017 and spent quite a bit of time in a number of countries where it seemed they were winning quite a bit. Um, but unfortunately, my story right now is not so positive. Some of those countries, you know, I, I, I realized once you're there, what seemed like a win wasn't always a win. Like many people mm -hmm. there would say it was actually a loss, even though it looked good relative to U.S. standards. Um, and then in some of those countries, they faced, like the U.S., major backlash. So that was 2016, 2017. And then we saw... A, a big uptick in authoritarian regimes um, and resistance and fight back. So some of those gains were rolled back. Um, and so I was, I'm trying to figure out and make sense of that um, as to like, what are those cycles of change? Uh, how we might learn from each other to, to bring this, like there's an upsurge in the U S might that spill over to other countries. Um, but it's been a rough decade, <laughs> you know, good things, some highs and some lows. <laughs> You mentioned the living wage earlier, and I think you've gotten two books about the living wage, yeah? Yes, yes. Could you explain to some who may not know, because we've got a quite a diverse listenership in terms of geographical location, and I don't know about their ideological orientations, though I'm trying to find out. <laughs> algorithmic surveillance oh, yes. <laughs> I, I only know which countries they're in thankfully um what the idea of the living wage is what the campaigns have been and also tell us a bit about your books on the topic sure yeah so the concept of the living wage is an old one it really since the beginning of capitalist labor markets workers have fought for a living wage just meaning the wage necessary to support a worker and or a worker with a family um, and so, you know, but that was a concession to the idea that there should be wage labor at all, right? So many people first just resisted wage labor. And then once they lost that fight, they said, okay, we should at least be paid enough to live on. How we define living wages is really complicated. There are technical ways to do it, like where people actually calculate these are the calories you need, you know, for manual labor. Um, this is the average rent in the neighborhood. Um so there's technical ways. And there's also political ways where workers themselves say, this is what we think we need. Either they do surveys or town halls or union meetings to say, this is what we demand. So there are different approaches around the world, some standardized, um, but, uh, you know, still a little room to play there. So I think most, many countries have, you know, developed over the last 10, 20 years, a greater interest in defining a living wage and then finding ways to raise wages to the living wage level. 
usually if there is a standardized minimum wage, a statutory minimum wage in most countries, and again, not set very differently from country to country. Australia's mechanism is very unique. Uh, the United States is the United States has no formula whatsoever. It just is a political battle. It doesn't, you know, and the UK sets it differently. So, but in most countries, that that statutory minimum wage is lower than a living wage. So then the fight becomes: How do we put pressure uh, to raise statutory minimum wages higher, and or use organizing union approaches to get those higher wages? Um, so some of my research has looked at some of those economics, like what are the ways to measure or to set a minimum wage? What are the impacts once we pass it? Um, does it lead to unemployment? Does it lead to you know mass you know chaos and recession? And then some of it is about the politics, like how it can be an organizing tool or not, like how it might undermine organizing. And then do cities or states enforce it? How can we best, you know, it's one thing to, to pass a living wage law, but it's another to get it enforced. Um, the one that's maybe closest to my heart is how to use it as an organizing tool, how to use it to build power. But I think the one I get asked to speak on most is to play the role of the economic expert and to you know, uh, to speak to city councils about why it might be a good idea to raise the wage. That's interesting. So if I go back a century or more to the beginnings of some forms of labor relations machinery in various relatively wealthy countries, we were talking about, in a sense, what's in the basket. (laughs) you and your family (laughs) need to survive. That used to be about the idea of free labor by women domestically and industrial proletarian or sort of low, lower middle class office work by men and how their dietary and residential needs along with those of two children could be met. It was that kind of formula that was often used, wasn't it? (laughs) Going back yes, to that time. Yes. Now we have a much more complicated story in terms of female participation in the in, in the formal labor market. But there's also the problem, isn't there, of still of the informal labor market and the way in which it is so often characterized in countries like the US by female and minority and migrant labor. So how does one factor in? the informal sector, which can get romanticized often mm-hmm. because, yeah. you know, in places like in <clears throat> America, most people are in the informal labor market. Most of the economy is actually in the informal labor market. can be romanticized, but can also mean there's not much of a tax base for schools and health mm-hmm. and the people operating the informal sector don't get many of the benefits that come from public investment. So could you speak to that aspect as well as the way we have to shift, or we still have to shift, from the image of the male breadwinner. Yeah, right. And and so that's why, like, the technical definitions of living wage are so hard, because family structures are so different. And, you know, even just in the United States, childcare is extremely expensive. So if you have a, a child that's three years old and needs to go to uh, full-time childcare so that two adults can work, Sometimes that is, you can't even afford to work the whole entire wage, which is go to pay the child care. Um, but if you have access to some informal, like if you 
live in an extended family or with grandparents that could change the dynamic. So that's why I feel like um, the paths that get very technical and trying to define every family are just never going to capture it right. And that's why I think you always still need the political element. And to me, that means also like thinking, what is our aspirational goal? It's not just describing what is, but what should be. And a living wage should be enough to allow people to not have to rely on public services or to rely on unpaid family labor or to rely on the church, uh, you know, food pantry. So, so that's one way to think about is what would the wage be? I mean, there's still all kinds of problems with that too. I feel like it can overemphasize the wage because, um, you know, if the wages keep going up, but housing prices keep going up and other costs keep going up, and if employers keep cutting hours of work, the hourly wage, you know, is only one part of the story. Um, and that's why, again, I think the political power, the organizing that comes with it, if you also have a union to enforce hours of work, or if you also have a political movement to keep rents affordable, um, that should be part of a living wage movement. Um, overly emphasizing that hourly wage will be too narrow. <laughs> and, and and there are people, I and I say that because there are people that kind of come from more of a liberal mainstream perspective who emphasize the market wage. And I think that's the incomplete way to understand it. Related to that, you have been involved in producing um, sort of state of the unions work uh, yes. that's publicly available. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Our, uh, my colleague at CUNY, Ruth Milkman, um, began this doing this kind of work when she worked at the University of California and wrote it for Los Angeles. And then we began doing it in New York and just an annual report looking at what is going on with union membership nationally and in the state and in the city. Um, just trying to track trends, um, you know, public sector versus private sector, talk by industry. Um, to be honest, it's it's getting more challenging because as union membership is so low, even the data is sparse. So being able to report for certain industries, there's just not even enough union members to reliably report that anymore. But, um, you know, that was the goal is to just have, you know, more focus and bring labor back into the spotlight since there isn't a lot of coverage in the mainstream, or there hadn't been a lot of coverage in the mainstream press. That is changing now. So, so yeah. Do you feel at the end of the, not the end of the day, but <clears throat> in any sense optimistic about the spread of unionism? And what about the threat of corporate unionism, mm -hmm. of just being company men and women, as it were? Yeah. Like a company union, you mean? Well, yeah. maybe formally so, but maybe informally so, where you have yeah. you know, the old story of union bosses who are in the pockets of executives. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, right now is just an extraordinary, fascinating moment in the United States labor movement. I just, I, I'm still struggling to understand and explain it. Um, the degree to which workers have been willing to fight for their rights at work, whether or not they have a union, like throughout the U.S. South, where union membership is very low because uh, labor has, labor laws are poor and hostility is high, but workers are just striking and they still, that started in the pandemic and it's continuing. They're walking out of the jobs, demanding higher wages or safe conditions. And then we see, you know, just a big interest in workers um, wanting a union. And then also leadership, the United Auto Workers leadership um, 
taking big stands on things like Gaza, like calling for a ceasefire, which is unheard of, I feel like, in a U.S. labor movement, particularly for what had been a relatively politically conservative union. Um, and uh, so I'm feeling hopeful about the potential right now. Um, the United Auto Workers leadership has called for unions to align their contracts for March 1st, 2028, uh, and community organizations, but to align um, to build our power because it's a recognition that none of these unions or groups can win major changes on their own. Um, it's happening right now in, in Minnesota in an entire region where uh, unions have aligned their contracts to perhaps have a general strike uh, in a couple of months. So I think there's a, a growing um, interest in long-term strategy and bigger demands and to say, you know, we now's the time to step it up and really fight corporate power. Um, on the issue of the the corporate uh, unions, um, I you know there's always going to be a challenge of union leaders that uh, are bureaucratic or even corrupt or lazy or undemocratic. Um, so that's that's been the reality for me the whole time I've really worked around the labor movement. But right now is actually a more interesting time where there's a lot of militant rank and file movements that have pushed to take over leadership of their unions so pushing them to be more active and, and more responsive. So I, right now I feel is the most uh, exciting time that I've ever seen in, in the movement. On the other <laughs> hand, the threats are big. So. Sorry, go ahead. The threats are bigger. You said no, or just, um, you know, the other, the opposition is, pretty uh, aware of this and they're doing everything they can to undermine this growing movement. There's a big um, uh, proposal by the Republican party that if they win the 2025, uh, 2024 election, uh, they have a whole plan laid out to undermine and actually uh, make it much easier for company unions to be established, uh, make it harder to organize, make it harder for uh, part-time workers to organize and so forth. So it's, now, it's the bourgeois media are large, by and large hostile to all democratic union movements in most parts of the world and hugely so in the United States. They also endeavor, if one can speak of them as a bloc, to represent cultural politics issues like ethnicity, race, sexuality, identity, and so on, in opposition to what they claim is you know, the salt of the earth, the proper working person. Yeah. It seems to me that along with the Southern strategy from the 60s and the Sunbelt strategy from the 80s, this is working very well for the Republican Party in the contemporary moment. Could you speak a bit to that and the arguments that people like the Squad, AOC, Bernie and so on are making, that what the Democratic Party must do over the next 10 months is really sharpen the focus on working people's needs and show how they are not met by anything the Republican Party stands for. Right. Yes. I mean, this is such a tricky one because, yeah, the mainstream Democratic Party for so many years was the face of neoliberalism, the face of austerity, and um, particularly going after the teachers' unions and, um, you know, undermining their main base of support and funding. So this is a really tricky one. I do think um, yeah, Bernie and the squad have pushed um, for a race class narrative, as, as people would say, that 
is we're not just, uh, you know, they're not just about one or the other, but we have to understand a multiracial working class and, and putting those uh, needs forward. Um, you know, it's, it is interesting. I'm not, a, uh, I'm not, I'm trying, I've been pretty skeptical of the Democratic Party and I'm still skeptical of Biden and particularly what's going on in Gaza is um, an outrage. Uh, but what has happened in the last four years around labor has been a very interesting and surprising turn. Uh, Biden's appointees to the National Labor Relations Board and Biden's role vis-a-vis uh, -vis macroeconomic policy and inflation have been surprising. They have been more worker friendly than I've ever seen a president in my lifetime. So um, I I think that clearly there's some voices within the Democratic Party that have his ear and have pushed and, and made him understand that the working class Demands, multiracial working class demands are a key part of his, you know, road to success. But, uh, you know, there's obviously tension there and uh, the squad is um, and and Sanders are are definitely very marginal right now. So it's a scary time. <laughs> so, Prof, I have a couple more questions, if I may, right. and then I'd like to throw it to you to add or subtract <laughs> to anything we've discussed, if there's something about your work or the current conjuncture that you'd like to add. So my first of my final two queries is to ask you how you find shit out. <laughs> <laughs> to use technical language. <laughs> oh, good question. You mean just in general and... Uh... How to, how to, where's my new sources? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I wake up in the morning and I read the obituaries in The Guardian, for example. Right. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> At my age, that's the first page a lot of people turn to, I've discovered. <laughs> yeah. But when you're doing serious research, whether it's a public report or something scholarly, yeah, how do you go about it? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that question. Well, I would say actually, even before that, my gut of where I feel like I'm reading the reading the mood of the world. Um, mm. I hate to admit this because you know I have such mixed feelings, but I am I do use Facebook because I find it's a way to stay in contact with many people around the world that I've met through my global research and global travels. And so I find that's often where I only ever hear international news um, is through like a labor organizers in other countries. Interesting. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is not an ad for Facebook, <laughs> but I don't find I have other, you know, consistent sources in that way. And well, then you also, know, the rumor is that you have some of those Zuckerberg A versus B shares, actually. That's what I've heard. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to see a, another form of Facebook. And then also um, just in teaching, like I continually go, try to listen to my students and hear what they're like, what they're feeling and how they experience the world. Um, but then I think the research I do, I, I wish I had a more consistent answer to how I go about it. I feel like I have, you know, the certain standard labor sources that, um, you know, via the ILO and the Department of Labor, um, other labor economists that I know. Um, and then I like to work with actual data, even though I don't always trust it, but like the Bureau of Labor Statistics data. Um, but I try, I try to stay eclectic. So I just um, uh, been teaching a class on power and strategy with my colleague. And, you know, we have tried to be 
reading a lot about business, military um, strategy and trying to stay up on like what our corporation is saying. Like some of the work I've done is like looking through corporate conference calls and what are they saying about the global economy? Um, so trying to like understand it from other points of view uh, can be a helpful way to learn. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you. And so my last question prior to opening it up to you is to ask what is next for you? What's on the docket? What are you yes. studying now? So, yeah, so actually I did, I did um, just finish this book based on that class called Power and Strategy with my colleague Deepak Pargava. And um, this is a call. It's It goes beyond labor. Our students in this class um, come from all sectors like environmental work, racial justice work. Um, and it's we've saw that students really didn't know about other sectors of work and other traditions and lineages of social change. So part of it is um, going through theories of power, of both theories of corporate power and government power, as well as our own like social movement power, and then what models of change go along with those. And it's really a call to get more sophisticated and long-term in our strategy. And just thinking about, you know, the right wing is so serious about long-term strategy. Some of these corporations have entire, you know, offices of scenario planning. Um, you know, Shell Oil will say like, what's our five and 10 year plan and what do we expect might happen? And I, as far as I know, no union or social justice group has anything like that. And so we're making a call to invest in long-term strategy and, and long-term strategists. Um, so some of the work I'm doing right now is trying to work with some of those organizations, trying to do that long-term strategy work. Um, yeah. And then the other project I'm working on right now is uh, not an academic one so much, but a little bit looking at what we know about how people uh, change their minds or develop their political ideology uh, in order to write some curriculum for unions that are working with political divisions within the union, how to talk about the threats uh, uh, to democracy and rising authoritarianism and how to do it in a way that, you know, co-workers can learn from one another and, uh, you know, really bring forth the, the notion of the that we have an incomplete democracy in the United States. We've never had a real democracy, but democracy is a good idea that we should fight to keep and expand and that unions have a big role to play in that. Wonderful. That sounds exciting. What's the title of the book again? It's called uh, Practical Radicals, Seven Strategies to Change the World. Modest, modest. <laughs> Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I admit, I was uh, very sheepish about that. Uh, no, 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 I love it. Seven, <laughs> that's when we begin at seven. So, Prof, I'd like to invite you now to add anything that where we haven't touched on something or we've not done it to your satisfaction. Well, only um, to say that I, I find this moment... I, you know, I, I'm not alone. I know a lot of people think this is the moment we're going to be looking back on in history as like when things really changed and a real sense that it's about to change for much worse, but it could change for much better. And I, um, I feel that the international component of that is absolutely fundamental. And I'm worried that since the pandemic, a lot of the international ties have really weakened, um, and so my own goal is also to reestablish, you know, uh, or re-engage um, healthier international ties, international peace movements, international um, movements around climate justice. I mean, these threats we're facing right now are 
absolutely global. And um, I think it's uh, it's that's what's really pressing for me is this need. So things like your podcast that reaches people in other in countries around the world is you know really exciting to me. That's I think the direction we need to be going. Oh, well, thank you so much both for teaching me a lot today, as your work always does, but also for those kind words. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me.